Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to use a blue pew Bible that you can find in front of you. You can pay, uh, find 1 Timothy 1 on page 991. All right, well, we're a week into 2023. How we doing? How we feeling about it? How's all those resolutions uh, keeping intact a week later? I don't know where you stand on the resolution spectrum. I don't know where I stand on that resolution spectrum, but um, I think one thing in general most people can agree with is that we, we do like the idea of fresh starts. Um, regardless if we're thinking about the new year or just a fresh start in general, a fresh start. There's something that kind of entices us about that. And, you know, I heard somebody this past week um, talking about the stark contrast that happens between Christmas and New Year's. That Christmas season is in a time when people love looking back, and they love family traditions and things they've been doing as a kid, and there's the songs you want to hear every Christmas season, there's that movie you want to watch, there's that family gathering you want to go to, and it's, it's a time that we kind of cherish of, again, looking back, and then within a span of a week, everyone flips, and you get to New Year, and now everyone wants to look ahead and is encouraged by new dreams, new aspirations, what does the future hold, and kind of wants to forget what's behind and go forward into a new year. And I'm not, um, you know, that's not an indictment, it's just an observation. In some ways, it's the fact that we all like both in some way. And to make a not-so-subtle spiritual segue, uh, there's a reality that as Christians— when we read the Bible, we often find ourselves being called to do both. That if you read the Bible enough, you're going to find moments and times where it encourages you to look back and to remember that the people of God should be marked as a people who remember. And in the midst of that, um, you even think about some of the practices that we hold as believers. Uh, here at Grace Church, we partake in the Lord's Supper each week. What is the Lord's Supper if it is not a collective remembrance of uh, God's people remembering the cross, remembering uh, the blood of Christ shed for us and what that has accomplished for us. And yet, if you continue reading the Bible and immersing yourself in your word, you will find that time and time again, it's, it's telling you to set your mind on eternity. It's telling you to look ahead. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And now to live your life in light of that future that we are walking into, and to do so with this kind of hope-filled reality that is sure. And so, again, in the Christian life, you're called to look back, and then other times you're called to look forward, and the reality is we're, we're kind of people who do both and need both. Uh, I think about even at the local level, at our church, um, that we stand today on the shoulders of those who have served and gathered as a part of this faith community for the last 76 going on 77 years and remembering their legacy of faithfulness and honoring it and understanding that we kind of steward the opportunity to now be part of that tradition that has come before us. Um, and at the same time, we look ahead to the future as a church. Uh, just this past fall, we did a vision series and its name was Future Grace. And kind of saying, hey, what has God been doing here? What, what, what do we see coming down a year from now, five years, ten years from now? What do we want to be and continually become? And uh, what we know at Grace is that over the last several years in his providence, he has been growing our church. And he's growing our church in a time and in a region where churches aren't growing. And, um, and yet we never have or never will have a size goal at Grace Church. 
I've said it before that there's no elder meeting that we've had. There's no staff meeting. We've said, okay, guys, we want to be this big by this date. How do we do it? That has never been discussed. It never will be. Uh, We say we have a faithfulness goal, not a fruitfulness goal. God calls us to be faithful. We want to be faithful here and trust that in his providence, he will make us fruitful as he sees fit. And so if God chooses to continue to grow us numerically, we want to embrace that. We want to steward that. Um, But ultimately, that is his job. And our job is to, by the power of the Spirit in us, to look more like Jesus. We want you a year from now. If the Lord wills that we're still here together five years from now, that you look more like Jesus then than you do now. And the way that we kind of talk about as a pathway that we revealed in that Future Grace series that we want to be running in the same direction is this framework of gather, grow, give, and go. If you were to ask, how can I uh, be on this path with this church, this is the framework that we all, again, want to operate under. Gather, grow, give, and go. That our primary collective commitment to one another is to gather. Now, what you're doing right now is participating in our primary commitment to the Lord and to one another is gathering together. And um, I, I will say often that what we're doing now is not the only thing we do as a church, but it is the most important thing. That everything else that happens really flows from our commitment to gather together. And um, I wrote an article this past week for our publishing platform on Substack Um, an article called, On Sundays We Gather. And in there I quoted Charles Spurgeon, who would often tell his church in the mid-1800s, a church that grew to over 5,000 people in downtown London, again in a time and a place when churches weren't growing, that he uh, would encourage his people that the most basic ministry they could commit to is the ministry of attendance. That all of us, our first and foremost ministry at this church is the ministry of attendance. That just showing up does something not only in your life but to others. That you will not interact with everyone who's here at the 11 a.m. service this morning. Obviously, you did not interact with everyone who's here at the 9 a.m. service this morning. But your just attendance, your commitment of embodied presence does something to build others up in this faith community. And then ultimately, we want you to grow in 2023. Like, we want you... um, you to want to say, if I want to be part of this church and invest my time, I want to grow here. I want to grow in my faith. I want to see my children grow. Like, what, what, is, what does growth look like? What can that look like in this faith community this year? And um, again, growth happens in the Sunday gathering, but it also happens outside of it. And which is why Christy emphasized uh, really the importance of grace groups here at our church. A ministry, as she said, where we draw closer to Christ as we draw closer to one another. And all of our groups that meet throughout the week, and there's early morning, and there's midday, and there's night, and there's late night, and there's men's groups, and women's groups, and specialty groups, all of it has a similar aim to help people grow. And Christy has actually done a fantastic job of ensuring that in a growing church, we're creating space and avenues where new groups can form and groups can multiply. So those who are new to the church can have easy on-ramps to say, I want to be part of a community that's going to help me grow. I want to be part of a community where I help others grow. And so can I encourage you as we again start a new year to reflect upon what are you doing to invest in your spiritual growth this year? And is it possible that committing to a grace group can be a big part of that? Um, another avenue of growth here is what we call our classes. Our, our, these are six-week classes that equip and train people in biblical and theological formation. 
And groups and classes are not an either or. We, we think they're both kind of really helpful and necessary for your holistic growth. Um, but we have another round of six of, of six week classes that start in February. And in the coming weeks, we'll open up registration for. And so uh, just be thinking. Let me encourage you to be thinking uh, as you head into this year that um, investing in your spiritual growth is good for you. It's good for those that the Lord has around you. And ultimately, it's good for the glory of God. But one week into January, we're excited about what is happening at Grace. And again, just want to be faithful and want you to be part of the story that God is clearly unfolding here um, within this community. All right, well, speaking about beginnings, uh, this morning we begin a new series in the book of First Timothy. And Lord willing, we're going to take our time through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his younger protege of sorts, uh, to a man named Timothy. And this morning, we're just going to dip our toes into the water of this letter. We're going to cover two verses, uh, just the greeting which will set the table for us and for this series. And now I say just the greeting, um, knowing that you know, that I know, that it's not just a greeting. Otherwise, we wouldn't spend an entire week on it. Um, But these opening lines of not only this letter, but many of the letters in the New Testament are some of the most overlooked, skimmed over verses in the Bible. And we're not going to make that mistake as we start this series. So, Bible's open, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I encourage you to keep the Bible's openings. We're going to keep coming, coming back to these opening verses of this letter. And the letter is distinct in a way in that most of the letters written in the New Testament and written by Paul are written to churches. But this one is written to an individual who is a leader at a certain church. And as we'll see throughout the letter, he very much intends for the church to read this letter, but it is addressed to one man. His name is Timothy who at that time is in the city of Ephesus. And we're somewhere in the early to mid-60s of the first century. So from a timeline standpoint, this is about 30 years after Jesus died and rose again. Paul writes this letter to Timothy. And next weekend, in the next passage, we'll talk more about the city, more about some of the challenges that they were facing um, within the church and in the city that informed the major themes of this letter. But I'll just say this now about Ephesus. Um, It was a rare city in its day in that it was large, it was metropolitan, and it was multicultural. Now, from our perspectives, about 20 miles outside of New York City, which is large and multicultural and metropolitan, that doesn't maybe surprise us as much as it would have in the ancient world to have a city like this. It was a rare city in its day. And Paul sought to encourage Timothy in fighting the good fight of faith. What a phrase. And we'll see it in the text um, throughout this series of fighting the good fight by being uh, devoted to the gospel in a way that strengthens the church within, in the way that gives the church this compelling witness to the city that it's located in. And so my hope is every week in this series, passage by passage, we're going to walk the bridge. 
We're going to walk the bridge from Memphis to Ridgewood. And we're going to encourage us at Grace Church in 2023 to fight the good fight of faith. But to start, we got just the greeting. And Paul provides the traditional greeting or the traditional beginning that people often gave in, when they wrote letters in the first century within the Roman Empire. And they all contained three parts, and they're pretty simple. The name of the author, the name of the recipient, and then the greeting. And so we're going to unpack those three things for the rest of our time and see some important insights that it has for us that kind of gives us a, um, a little cue into what's going to come later in the letter. But we're going to start with number one. We have an author with authority. We have an author with authority. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Um, so I know many of you in this room, you're familiar with Paul. You're familiar with Paul's writings. But I know there also might be many in here who aren't as familiar. And so to put it most concisely, um, Paul was the first and most impactful missionary in the history of the church. He was the first and most impactful missionary in the history of the church. And his pattern was pretty consistent. He was to travel from um, Jerusalem, which is where the church began, and he would travel there to new cities and to new regions without the Roman Empire. And he would share the gospel wherever he went. He would see people come to know Christ. And then he would plant churches, raise up leaders for those churches, and then leave. And he would go from city to city, journey to journey, proclaim the gospel, see people come to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, plant churches, start churches, raise up leaders for those churches, and then move on. But then he would remain in contact with those churches through the writing of letters. And 13 of those letters written by Paul are included in the New Testament. Uh, he is responsible for about 25% of the New Testament, all written by Paul. And he self-identifies, to begin this letter, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. So according to scripture, in order to be an apostle, and there were 12. So there were many disciples, but there were 12 apostles. In order to be an apostle, an individual had to be present during the earthly ministry of Jesus and be directly commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So the entire New Testament is written by either an apostle or a close associate to an apostle. But Paul's road to becoming an apostle was the most unique. Because he's the only one of the twelve who did not follow Jesus during his earthly ministry. There's no evidence that he had ever met Jesus before Jesus died. Nor did he see Jesus after his resurrection and before his ascension into heaven. However, Paul did have a personal encounter with Jesus. After his ascension, and it's a story that's told in Acts chapter 9. If you're interested and have time, you can read through Acts 9 and see the entirety of that story. But um, in short, before the encounter, Paul was a Pharisee, meaning uh, at that time he was a persecutor, an enemy of the early Christians. And he was present and he was gladly affirming the execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is the first martyr of the church, killed, executed, stoned to death for sharing his faith. And Paul was there. The text actually says Paul was the coat holder. 
that the Pharisees gave them his coats so they could get a better arm angle when they threw the stones to kill Stephen. And he was there and he was holding the coats and nodding and gladly affirming the execution of this young man for being a Christian. And then literally he took it upon himself to go on a road to a city called Damascus to round up and arrest Christians who fled Jerusalem after Stephen was killed. So Stephen is killed and people get freaked out. And they leave. But when they leave, there's a problem. They're sharing the gospel where they go. Paul catches wind of it. Not a fan. Not happy with that. Goes to the leaders and says, I'll go get them. I'll round them up. I'll bring them back. And it's on that road that he has a supernatural encounter with Jesus. And it changes everything. It changes everything in him. It changes everything about the rest of his life. By the way, maybe not in so dramatic terms, but God is still in the business of doing that, of changing people's lives, of revealing himself to us and changing the trajectory of where things are going. And so in Acts 9, Jesus commissions Paul with now a clear purpose. Paul would be an apostle, and he will proclaim the name of the power of Christ to the nations. And in his own words, Paul says that he has been sent to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and receive the forgiveness of sins. So Paul is an apostle. But if your Bible's still open, look back down at verse 1. There is a word that is unique in his introduction to 1 Timothy. It's the only time he says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. You see it? By command of God. That this is an assertive display of the authority he has. And even more so, the authority of the one who has commissioned him. Um, As we'll see next week, the reason Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus in the first place was to confront false teaching that was undercutting the gospel that Paul had planted that church with. So false teachers had come into the city. They started some false teaching within the church, um, really discrediting Paul in order to undercut his gospel. So now Paul is writing to Timothy, who knows his authority. But again, he's writing this, keeping in mind that the church eventually will be reading it too. And he's very assertive, right out of the gate. He's an apostle, and he has authority, because that authority has come from, by command, from God. The topic of authority, uh, important then in the first century like it is now in the 21st century. Um, So think about this with me. Um, This week, any day this week, if somebody were to tell you to do something uh, in person, somebody sends you a text, you're watching the news, somebody says you should do something, uh, you are on social media, and you are told, do this. We will consciously or subconsciously take into account the authority of the one who is talking to us. To put it plainly, the answer to the question, why should I listen to you? Why should I listen to her? Why should I listen to him? Is taken into consideration whenever we hear anything. And we're thinking about authority. What authority does this person have? And if we deem that someone does not have authority or credibility to speak into my life, then guess what? I don't have to listen. I can if I want, but I don't have to. So let me share an example on a literal childlike level. Um, We have four kids, and like most kids do, I don't know if your kids like this too, they love telling each other what to do. And Brinley is our second oldest. 
our first daughter, second oldest child, she's outranked by age only by her older brother, Caden. Now, if Brinley were to say to Caden, um, walk into the living room where Caden is playing basketball and says, Caden, stop playing basketball. It's my turn to play with my horses. And in our house, our horse stable is also our basketball court in our living room. And she goes in and says, Caden, stop playing. It's my turn to play. What do you think Caden says most often to that? No way. All right, maybe your kids are better than ours. Uh, but he's like, no. But if Brinley goes in and says, Caden, dad says, stop playing basketball. It's my turn to play horses in the living room. He listens. He doesn't like it. He will complain. He'll have something to say about it. But he listens. Why? The authority has changed. Now, I've also caught Brinley overhearing from the other room. Uh, Brinley will go in and say, Dad says, when I never did say. <laughs> because, and she doesn't even realize it, she's thinking about authority. And she knows if she invokes my name, he'll listen. Because she's smart like that. And she's a sinner, all right? <laughs> Just like the rest of us. And we love her, and God loves her. But she's dealing on the plane of authority. And Paul is writing to Timothy, so Timothy can carry the authority of Paul, who carries the authority by the command of God. And those in the church in Ephesus, um, they might not always initially like what they hear that God says. Similar to us, there might be times where you're reading his word or you're hearing it unpacked, and your initial reaction, if you're honest, is, I don't like that. It doesn't seem right to me. Um, it's okay to have that honest reaction, but we need to come to terms with the fact that whether or not we like something, when it comes to God's word, does not dictate whether or not it's true. Because his word is authoritative. But, but here's the thing about authority. You know, authority can get a bad rap, especially kind of institutional authority amongst um, our culture today, especially amongst younger generations, there's a kind of a built-in skepticism now towards authority or towards institutions. But the thing about authority is that when rightly used and deployed, it is leveraged for the purpose of seeing others thrive. Let, let me say it again. Authority rightly used is supposed to be leveraged for the purpose of seeing others thrive. So authority in and of itself is not the problem in our world. Bad examples and bad users of authority is at every level, including the institution of the church. Authority is not the problem. Bad examples of authority are the problem. But authority is good because it is rooted in God himself. And Paul is pouring himself out to encourage and invest in young Timothy who will in turn encourage and invest in the church in Ephesus so it will thrive for God's name's sake. And so just before we move on to the uh, second point, a, a word to those in this room who have some level of authority in your life. Um, a word to parents, uh, perhaps if you're a boss or if you're a manager at work, you're an elder. Um, a teacher, a coach, um, you know, the list goes on. You, you have and hold authority. It could even be a brother or sister in Christ who is older in age because within the family of God, those who are older in age have a built-in authority amongst the people of God. Can I ask you to reflect for a moment? 
and ask yourself, how are you using your authority to invest in the next generation? Do you know the power you hold in seeing others thrive by the authority that God has given to you? Do you see your authority primarily as a means through which you can see others thrive in the way you pour into them? For the glory of God. Like what a calling. What a privilege you have for the authority God has given you. Are you using it and deploying it in the way God has designed you to? This is an author with authority. That's number one. Let's go to number two. This traditional greeting contains a recipient with a mission. A recipient with a mission. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. So we actually know quite a bit about Timothy from the Bible, uh, more than most uh, men and women that are mentioned. We know how he and Paul's relationship began, and we knew how it grew to the point where it was not just a matter at this point when he's writing the letter. It's not just a mentor and mentee, but there's a real father-son bond between them. In Acts chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 13, Paul was commissioned by the church along with Barnabas to go on what was known as, or what we refer as, his first missionary journey. And throughout the book of Acts, there are three missionary journeys that Paul takes, again, that are recorded. The first is in Acts chapter 13. And that first journey took him from Antioch to cities like Lystra and Iconium and Derby. We actually have a map of the first missionary journey that we can put up on the screen. We can go to that next slide. There's a first map up there. All right, so you have in the bottom right-hand corner, you see Syria. North of that, there's Antioch. That is the church that first commissioned Paul. And you see the arrows going out and then the arrows coming back in. But eventually ends up in kind of that top central part of the map, which is uh, a region called Asia Minor. It's present-day Turkey. And within those um, region, there are cities like Lystra and Iconium. And then circled in red, thank you, AJ, for making it easy for us, is a city called Derby. I don't know if it's pronounced Derby, but this whole morning I'm going with Derby. And that is Timothy's hometown. And it's in this first missionary journey that Paul, in all likelihood, met him. Because in the book of 2 Timothy... Paul writes at the beginning of that letter how grateful he is for Timothy's mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, who taught Timothy the Old Testament scriptures as a child. So Paul meets this young man, he meets his family, and and then what's likely is that based on the way Paul is writing to Timothy and about Timothy in the letters, is that he either led Timothy to Christ, right, even in this letter, my true child in the faith, or played an instrumental role in bringing Timothy to Christ and discipling his family when he was first in Derby in that missionary journey. But in general, like what a blessing Timothy would turn out to be for Paul and vice versa. And Paul headed out on this first missionary journey having no idea who he was, knowing no idea that he would meet them or if it would mean anything And it just reminds me of, and it reveals um, how telling of an example it is of the relational blessing God provides his people when we faithfully follow him in our lives. 
the kind of relational blessing that God provides his people when we follow him faithfully with our lives. Again, Paul answered the call to go, to be sent by the church, not knowing what was ahead of him, especially he's the first missionary going on the first journey along with Barnabas. And he comes upon this town in Asia Minor called Derby, and he meets this family somehow, and he's introduced to this young man who would, in the future, be not only a vital partner in gospel ministry, but would be one whom he would address as his true son in the faith. And this reminds me, actually, of a tweet I saw, not this last week, but the week prior, um, right at the start of the new year, by a woman named Laura Ferguson. Laura Ferguson, she's an author. And her tweet was this, quote, You still haven't met all of the people who are going to love you. Let that one simmer for just a moment. Going into this year, you still have not met all the people who are going to love you. And I wonder who you're going to meet in 2023. Who will one day say and show their love for you? And I'm not just talking about romantic love, although it might include that. But kind of even more importantly, if I could say that, like Christian love. Like friendship love, like covenant member love, like brother and sister in Christ love. I wonder who you're going to meet this year. You have no idea who they are. But one day, they're going to say and show their love for you. Well, we get now from Acts chapter 13. If you go to Acts chapter 16, again, you don't have to turn there. We get the recording of Paul's second missionary journey. And part of that journey was retracing his steps from the first one. So we got a second journey. We got a second map. All right, new year, new maps. All right, so the next map. Now we got Jerusalem is in the far right corner. So this time he's being sent out from Jerusalem, not Antioch. Goes up the right side, back into Asia Minor. Eventually he'll cross into Europe. The first time the gospel goes to modern day Europe from um, Asia. And then back down to Jerusalem. But he retraces his steps in Derby. And he spends some time there, and this is what happens in Derby, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So we can't unpack all of that, but we can infer from that that Timothy was already engaged in some kind of ministry before Paul brought him formally onto his team. And he was busy at the local level amongst Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And that ministry was bearing fruit. Like he was known throughout the region, it said. He was spoken well of. By both Gentiles and Jews, for Timothy himself was half Jewish, half Gentile. Um, so isn't this true? Like if you're looking to bring somebody onto your team, whether it's an organization or it's a company, and you have a say as to who's going to come onto your team, uh, as you're evaluating a candidate, isn't it a good thing to find out that they are spoken well of by people around them? Like you ask people to provide their references, and generally the references are going to speak well of them, but you kind of you do your own little manhunt on the side. 
Manhunt, the wrong word for that, all right? You do your own little investigation on the side, and, like, it's just a breath of fresh air. You find out, like, this person, this man, this woman, is just well-spoken of. They have a good reputation, and what they're doing is bearing fruit. And that was the case with Timothy. And so now Timothy partners in gospel ministry with Paul and would do so until the end of Paul's life. And it becomes clear throughout Acts that Timothy not only gained Paul's trust, but he would become Paul's go-to man to go into hard places and situations. So I'll move quickly here, but I just want to show you how this happens in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, so the chapter after, we find out that Timothy joins Paul on his journey. Paul was driven out of the city of Thessalonica by the Jews. Threatening his life, he has to flee to Athens by ship. But in Acts 17, it says that he told Timothy to go stay in the city. To stay in that hard place to instruct new converts there. Timothy, I got to go. They're trying to get me. You got to go back in. Because there's new converts there. You got to disciple them. You got to instruct them. Timothy, you got to stay. In his letter later to that church, which we know as 1 Thessalonians, he indicated another time when he had been prevented from being with them. So what did he do? He sent Timothy back to encourage them. In his letter to the church in Corinth, uh, if you know about the church at Corinth, it was a church that was rife with all sorts of problems and internal divisions. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, quote, Therefore, I sent you Timothy to remind you of my ways in Christ. Now, Paul gets word that false teachers have infiltrated the church at Ephesus and began to spread disruptive teaching. So what does he do? Who does he send? Timothy, the fixer. Timothy, the encourager. Timothy, the one who is willing to go into hard places on behalf of Paul. And so again, I just want to hover there for a moment before we move to the third point. That Timothy was entrusted to live out and promote the ways of Christ in hard places during hard seasons. And as we stand, January 8th, 2023, some of you might resonate more than others with being in a hard place. Or in a hard season. Or both. The school you're at, the company you're in, the family situation your own kind of place in life. You're just like, I'm just in a hard place. I'm in a hard season. And our natural reaction to hard places and hard seasons is, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm sick of the frustration. I'm tired of always feeling tired. You been there? It just feels like issue after issue popping up. Let this little greeting in the book of 1 Timothy that often gets skimmed over be a reminder to you that maybe God chose you for this assignment. That, that, that maybe God chose you and sent you into a hard place because he knows you and knows not only that you can handle it, but that you can, like Timothy going into Ephesus, can remind and shine the ways of Christ in a way that only you can because of where you are or what you've experienced. Maybe God's plan for you in 2023 
is better than the plans you had for yourself. Maybe he has sent you into a hard place because he knows you can handle it. And if you're not in a hard place as an individual, um, let's just be honest. We think corporately, we think as a church here, um, you are part of a church here at Grace Church that ministry speaking, location speaking, is kind of in a hard place. If you were tomorrow to say, I want to plant a church, and I want to plant a church, my goal is to make this church grow as fast and as big as I possibly can, as fast as I possibly can, you know where you wouldn't go? Bergen County. I don't think we'd top, like, crack the top 10. I don't think we'd crack the top 100, and I think we'd be struggling to crack the top 1,000 of regions where you would go to see the fastest growing church. But if you were to plant a church with the aim of being in a hard place and feeling like you're called to a hard place to shine the light of Christ, this might be the place. We got a place for you. And there are challenges to being a committed believer in the place where God has called us, let alone a committed member of a Bible-preaching church and a gospel-centered church. There are a lot of challenges. I don't want to overstate. We're not like we're persecution, but there's difficulty here. There's challenges that have been here to fruitful, growing, healthy churches. And while those challenges are real, man, what an opportunity. What an opportunity to be sent together to walk in the ways of Christ and trust what God can do with long-term faithfulness through the local church. Uh, Mez McConnell, real quick, he's the author of a church aptly titled, his book is called Church in Hard Places, Mez McConnell. And he's pastor, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, of Nidri Community Church in Edinburgh, Scotland. He writes this, the quote will be on the screen. He says, God has chosen the local church and no other human organization to be his kingdom representative to the world. The church is central to the purposes of God and is of benefit to the world around us, even today in our increasingly hostile culture. What an opportunity we have. Timothy was a recipient on a mission, and now the third and final piece, a greeting with grace. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So in these brief two verses, again, if your Bible's open, look down at this. Paul manages to affirm twice this vital Christian doctrine and truth that has been and continues to be one of the most important doctrines over the last 2,000 years since the church began. And the doctrine is this. Jesus is God. And in verse 1, when he introduced himself and he affirmed the authority given to him, he put God the Father and Jesus the Son on the same playing field. The Father is God. The Son is God. And now he does it again in verse 2. And we need to affirm that the gospel depends on it. Your salvation and your hope depends on Jesus being God. And the hope of our church depends on it. And so if nothing else this year, let's affirm and join Paul in imitating him in 2023. And saying it to ourselves and to our children and to one another and everybody else you can this year. Jesus is God. And it changes everything. But then in ancient letters, the introduction most often included the word that loosely translates from the Greek to the English word, greetings. So if this was a standard letter that Paul wrote, it would go like this. Paul, to Timothy, greetings. And then he would jump right in. And when you think about it, it's not so different from the way we communicate today. Our communications are much shorter 
and informal and more frequent than they were in the first century. We don't need to announce who it's from. Our phones do that. Uh, you don't necessarily need to address who, although we still do sometimes, right, to somebody. We say somebody's name when we begin a message. But we also commonly include a brief word to start. So you get an email, you get a text, and somebody says, good morning. Or the kind of catch-all that's especially popular in the, I don't know, corporate world. And I admit, even in church conversations, you've probably seen me write this to you. It says, hope all is well. We all kind of do it, right? Or um, hope you and the family are well. Hope you enjoyed your Christmas. Um, Happy New Year. You have about like two more days you can say Happy New Year and then we're done. All right. So there's some kind of intro that we start with. It's a platitude. It's a catch-all. Hope you're well. And we can all be honest. It's a little silly that we do it. But you know why we do it? Because it's weirder if you don't. Like, it would be kind of weird to just, like, jump right in. So something has to go in there. And so up until now, like, hope all is well just seems to work best. Uh, so don't be offended, all right, if I give you a hope all is well this week. I don't know what else to say. Um, but Paul, while in line with the traditional greeting, he adds a twist. He always replaces greetings with grace. And then sometimes in his letters he adds peace. And then occasionally, like in 1 Timothy, he adds mercy. Peace and mercy probably added because, again, he's writing to a man who's in a hard place. God's grace and mercy and peace to you. But he always includes grace. And I don't care how long you've been following Christ, even if you've been following your whole life, you will never dig to the bottom of the well that is God's grace. And the more you dig into God's grace, the more you will see that is exactly the way to start a letter. He replaced greetings with grace because grace is the one word summary of God's saving act in history through his son, Jesus Christ. It's all encompassed in one word and the word is grace. That the God of this universe who created all things, who's the highest, the most ultimate authority of all things, reveals himself to us to be a God of grace. Don't let it be normal to you. Don't let that sound normal to you. Timothy, everything that's about to be contained in this letter, I need you to know, before we start, everything I say is in the context of God's grace to you. Grace Church, as you begin a new year, I want you to remember that God's dealings with you this upcoming year in your life, with your dreams, and your joys, with your sin and your brokenness, all that he's going to deal with you this upcoming year, some of which you might have a hunch about, probably a lot, you have no idea. You need to know this, that all of it is in context of his grace to you. So I want to finish with this, talking about looking back. In 1946, this church began, and it began in a living room um, a couple, about a mile away in the town of Ridgewood. And then, in, that was 1946, 1947, they bought this land and began building on this land. Uh, the original name for this church was not Grace Church. It was Ridgewood Bible Church. But at some point within that first year, the name changed to Grace Church. I don't personally know the reason why that name change was made. Perhaps some of you do. I have, not, I have some of the really earliest minutes of elder meetings back in the 40s, but I have not read kind of the explanation. Why did they change it to Grace Church? 
But I can't help but imagine that the reasoning between some elder meeting or congregational meeting to say, no, we're going to be grace church, that the reasoning was somewhat similar to the reason why Paul changed the traditional greeting of the letters from greetings to grace. Perhaps the founders of this church wanted people to know in their church and the generations to come, like me and you, that every time they walk into this building, they are walking into grace. Perhaps they wanted to know that every time you serve the people in this church, that you're doing so with the gifts given to you by God's grace to you. Every time you give, you are sowing into the ministry of God's grace to the world through Grace Church. Every time you get a letter in the mail from this church or an email in your inbox or a text on your phone or maybe they want you to be reminded of God's grace. When you join a community of faith, perhaps they want you to know above all else that you become a covenant member of a community that is willing to stick with you through thick and thin. Why? Because we are all part of Grace Church. I don't know, maybe that's why. But it's God's grace to us that has made evident most of all, back to verse 1, through Christ Jesus, our hope. And that is why this is not just a greeting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first and foremost for your son, Christ Jesus, our hope. We thank you that our hope is not secured by our ability to love you more this year or to perform for you well in 2023, to impress you or make you proud, but that our hope is rooted in the grace of your son Jesus, our hope. And I pray, Lord, in 2023, and as many of the years the Lord has still for us, that we can have true, lasting confidence, and our hope can be sure, because it is founded upon a man who lived 2,000 years ago and gave his lives for us. Father, let us receive your grace to us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. Respond in song by singing in Christ alone.